Good afternoon. You are listening to Radio Maria England live with me, Anna Fleischer. And this afternoon, um, for this credo slot, we have Edward Hadass, who is a research fellow at Blackfriars Oxford and is doing a whole series every week for us, um, which have all the ones I've listened to have been fascinating. Um, this week, we have um, you're going to be talking about Rose Hawthorne Lathrop, Lathrop um, who is not someone I've ever heard before but I was reading a bit about her life story and it's totally fascinating so I'll, I'll hand over to you to sort of introduce the topic to the listeners. Right. So Rose who as I will call her and as everyone seems to who knows anything about her um, is a fast is indeed a fascinating figure and um, what I'm going to talk about I'll talk a bit about her life and then I'm, I'm during the course of this this hour and I'm also going to try to explain why I think she is really a saint for our time um, particularly a saint for women of our time um, and uh, those mm -hmm. particularly of sort of a, a kind of woman who I run into quite often, young women trying to find a place in life um, and not somehow succeeding. Yeah. And just for the listeners, so, she's a, a servant of God, I believe. So she's not quite yes, a saint yet. She's not quite yeah. a saint, right? She's a servant of God. Um, we're waiting for miracles and um, her order um, has has rather faded, so that it's it's somewhat hard to get miracles these days. <laughs> but um, I believe firmly that she is indeed a saint, and uh, and we should we should all pray to her. And should I ever get ill, I will be praying entirely <laughs> to Rose Hawthorne um, Lathrop from a miraculous cure. Anyway, so she is the daughter of the well-known American writer Nathaniel Hawthorne. Any Americans listening um, might have had to read the Scarlet Letter in, in secondary school. Um, and Hawthorne was, it, in his day, in the, which is the middle of the 19th century, probably the most famous um, American novelist. And um, so Rose was born in 1851 um, into a family that was already quite distinguished. As I say, her father was a, uh, um, a novelist. He was not Catholic at all, mm -hmm. quite the contrary. He was um, descended from the traditional Puritans of New England, the people who had left England um, because the Protestants there weren't fierce enough. And um, he was obsessed, really, in his life with the kind of spiritual damage that can be done by religious self-righteousness. That's roughly what the the, uh, um, the Scarlet Letter is about, and it's a theme yeah. of a lot of his work. So he was very sort of, uh, he was quite positive about the potential of religion, but he saw the, 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 the Puritan tradition of, of, the, of the Northeast of the United States as in some ways quite toxic. Um, he married a woman, um, uh, what's her name, Sophie, who was a, uh, who came from a different New England tradition um, or an offshoot of that tradition, which had gone the other way. These are the Unitarians. Um, they didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus, so they're not quite okay. Christian. They still exist. Um, they are now uh, tend to be almost non-religious, um, and they were well on their way to that uh, by the, the 19th century, by the, at least by the end of Rose's life. And her mother was from a quite distinguished family in that tradition. Um, those of you who have seen Little Women or read the book, um, the, the family 
that Louisa May Alcott came from was also involved in sort of utility uh, in in the utopian communities uh, in in that area of New England, um, huh. and they were friends with um, uh, with with the Hawthorne or the family that the. the that, that Rose's mother was from. So it's, it's a very small elite community, both sides of the family, kind of hippies on the one side and kind of uh, you might think of neocons on the other. Um, <laughs> so, so, so is there a link between the kind of the Unitarian and the Utopian? Uh, I, oh, yes, yeah. very much so. Um, the Unitarian tradition was very much involved in social reform. They were great abolitionists. And we'll see that Rose uh, gets involved in that tradition. Um, so the, but they're very interested in the idea of social change. The utopianism was an idea that we could set up much, you know, utopian perfect communities but barring perfection there was a was a notion that we could improve society greatly so the unitarians were great leaders as i said of abolition of slavery but also temperance um, not drinking and um, various kinds of reform for for housing and for the poor um, and and so there there is a very strong tradition of, of social action and of, uh, of worldly involvement um, of, 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 of a sort that many Catholics now at least could, could certainly get behind. Mm -hmm. So there's Rose. Um, she's the baby of the family. They're two older siblings, a, bro a boy and a girl. Um, and she comes into the world um, with, with this, this, this strong background. Her parents were a very loving couple um and uh and that had a great influence on her her father was it seems rather tired by the time she came around and didn't show her a lot of interest a lot of, didn't show a lot of interest in her um uh, partly because i think he was tired of parenting partly because he was very busy writing um writing then didn't pay very much even though he was very distinguished and they spent much of their life in a sort of genteel poverty where they never quite had enough money to afford their lifestyle. What's relevant for the Catholic story here is Rose grew up as a Christian, but not a very particularly devout one, um, not a particularly that she went to church as one did in those days, but it didn't seem to be a huge part of her life um, for many years. Um, what what the, the anecdote, there are two anecdotes that are relevant from her childhood. One, uh, they both take place in Europe. Her father um, was consul in Liverpool for the United States government for a few years. And after that, they stayed in Europe um, traveling a bit and went, among other things, to Rome. Um, and Rose at this point was something like seven or eight years old when they were in Rome. So the first story is from England. There is, uh, it appears in one of Hawthorne's own short stories, Nathaniel, the father's stories, um, where a man embraces a leprous youth. So much like St. Francis embracing a leper and he is repelled by it, but feels it's the right thing to do. And it turns out that this was, although it's a story, it was actually something that Hawthorne himself did. Um, oh, and that came out, uh, his, he told his wife about it, and she eventually told the daughter. 
And this was a, an example to Rose of Christian charity, of reaching out to the poor. But she identified very strongly with her father. Her father plays a very important role in her psychological life. And in some ways, uh, as, as I'll say, her decision to become Catholic involved a not a repudiation, but perhaps a fulfillment of understanding what it was that she needed to do to live up to her father's aspirations for her and her own aspirations to um, live up to, to his standard of living. So this Christian charity was, was very powerful to him, to her. The other story is during the trip to Rome, she was apparently fascinated by all the pageantry and the beauty of the churches, as was her mother. And for a Unitarian to be fascinated by the gaudiness of 19th century Rome was a bit <laughs> shocking. Um, so, uh, and, and Hawthorne wrote a novel that was in part uh, based on, on, on this experience in which the daughter is older than Rose actually was, more the age of her older sister, but about 16 or 17 in this novel. And um, the, the daughter is terribly attracted to being Catholic, but mm. at the end decides not to be. She writes something along the lines of, I realized I was a good American girl and couldn't become <laughs> Catholic. <laughs> so, Anna, uh, there you have it. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, but I think this is possibly significant in the sense that there was a kind of appeal in the background of her life as she wanders through life, and I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes, um, of, of, of a child who could see that there was something in the Roman rite, in the Roman elegance that was going to, uh, that, that had a kind of truth to it that she intuited as a little girl, and that her father, a sensitive observer of humanity, by pushing the story forward a little bit to making her a teenager, um, also felt a certain kind of appeal of the of the the glory of Catholicism, and so that that I think also is is going to be an ingredient of of Rose's life. Okay, so mm -hmm. so far so good. Uh, so Rose grows up. Um, She's not a particularly unhappy child or a particularly happy child. Um, she's a bit lonely because uh, she didn't really go to school very much and she didn't have very many friends and they kept moving. Um, her father dies when she's about 18, uh, maybe even a little younger. Mm. And um, let's see, no, yeah, a bit younger than that because she was born in 1851 and he dies in 1864. So she's 13 when he dies. Sorry, um, yes, yes. And, um, and, and he, uh, and, and she, um, she, you know, she didn't go to university or anything like that. So in that way, she's not a model for, for women of today in, in the slightest. Uh, but what, what, what is striking about her is that she seems quite lost. And I think that's that's the, the, the thing that really I want to talk about is how she was lost and how she became unlost, how she became found. So she, she thinks she should be a writer. Her father was rather dismissive of the notion that she should write novels and stories, but somehow she felt she should be. And she was mildly talented. Um, this is a theme that goes through her first 40 years. She writes 
a few novels. She writes some children's stories. Um, but it's pretty obvious uh, from reading them. I haven't read them, but the biography that I, I reused, the, the writer of the biography carefully read through all of these stories. Um, and that, that she's not a terribly gifted writer, either stylistically or in plot. Um, but what she is, what the stories express is a kind of um, listlessness of not not having a lot of direction yeah. of women the heroines who seem to be cunning without any real purpose they seem to not know what they want and do things that trick people and make everyone unhappy um, so there's if we look at that autobiographically we can imagine that rose feels she doesn't really know where she's going she feels she's something of a fate as a writer as a as a wife come to that in a second as a mother uh, perhaps um, that that she doesn't really have a purpose and and here I think is 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 where I, I when I talk to, to young people um, I, I hear so often the yeah. sense of not sure what I'm doing where I'm going there is a, a well I wouldn't necessarily recommend anyone watch this series but a flea bag from a few years ago, which I, I confess to watching in sixth form. It is quite vulgar in many ways, but it does very much express this this thing that you're talking about, the kind of listlessness, the the cunning, but totally directionless, has no idea what she's doing, this main character in this TV series, and f expresses this very kind of, in a really moving scene that I know a lot of people found really moving, um, just wanting someone to tell her what to do with her life because she felt like she didn't, no, yeah, so I I think it it does resonate with a lot of people today. That's that's, that's a great example. I have not seen the show, but I've had three or four people say exactly that, <clears throat> that it really sort of spoke to them in terms of, of that lack of direction and, and uh, trouble and indeed wanting direction that, that, that you just said, I think is a very, a very good example of that, of, of a very good sort of expression of the, of, of the air. So um, nowadays, of course, um, I don't know what happens to the woman in that, that show because I didn't watch it, but people don't tend to get married as a solution to that problem. Mm -hmm. um, they tend to not get married, in fact. Um, sometimes lots of romances, um, sometimes cohabitation, um, but they, marriage is seen as a sort of distant culmination <clears throat> of some dream, um, and of course, marriages often don't work out that way in the modern world or at any time. Um, but in, in late 19th century England, uh, it would be very odd for someone not to get married. Um, and indeed, Rosa, Rose gets married. She marries George Lathrop, um, who was an aspiring writer himself, member of the same sort of literary set. Um, was very happy to marry into the famous Hawthorne family. Mm -hmm. And as far as we can tell, they were reasonably happy together, um, at least for the first few years. Um, Rose and her sister both seem to be unwell. They have a kind of 19th century feminine ailments, mm -hmm. um, which are often described as neurasthenia. I think we would say they were depressed um, and they had sort of psychosomatic type problems, uh, both of them. It's also possible that they just were ill and had a lot of infections, who knows? Yeah. Um, but she's clearly treated by her husband and 
in her own sort of self-image as a young woman, um, as a person who's of delicate constitution, both physically and psychologically. <clears throat> Excuse me. So she gets married um, at age 20. And um, a few years later, she has a son five years later. Um, and the fact that there was that delay um, is, is indicative of something going wrong um, um, in terms of either body or soul, um, because that would be very unusual to, to wait five years to have a child. And her child is, is born named Francis. Um, and this seems to make her reasonably happy to be a mother. But he then dies very suddenly of diphtheria when he's only five years old. And this throws her off terribly. Um, she she had actually had the sort of postpartum, what we would now call postpartum psychosis after he's she's he's born, but he, she gets over that and seems to be fine. Um, but when when he dies, her last sense of purpose in life seems to disappear. She continues to write stories. She continues to be part of a social and literary set. No interest at this point in social reform, but a great sense of not having much purpose in life, not knowing what to do. And she actually separates from her husband for a while. Um, and then gets back together with him. We don't really know. We have a lot of letters to her and from her, but she's very coy about, or we just don't have any mm -hmm. information about what's going on in her head when she leaves and when she comes back. Um, it doesn't seem to be um, a story about an abusive husband or an alcoholic husband. That's relevant because um, he's been accused of that. He seems to be very solicitous of her, on the, far from being abusive. Um, he sees her as very weak psychologically or fragile, and he takes great care of her. And he, he writes extremely affectionate letters to her, and she back to him. So it doesn't seem like they have any particular marital tension. But on the other hand, it doesn't seem like it's, as it were, doing it for her. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't seem to feel that married love is the answer to whatever it is that her problem is that she she can't even express except perhaps through her stories indirectly. Um, okay, so that's the background. Um, and here we have her then, a woman in her 30s um, who is um, has tried marriage. It's not working terribly well and has yeah. tried separation, that didn't work terribly well, is now back with her husband. Um, her husband gets ill, he has some kind of digestive problem that eventually will kill him. It's, they, they diagnose it as nephritis. They move from New York to the country in New London, Connecticut, which is a, at that point a yeah. quite small town. Shall, and, shall we potentially leave the story yes. there for a bit? If she, she's I in this malaise, really yeah. And we yes. can have so a... We'll, a we, will leave, we will leave Rose and George alone mm -hmm. in New London, Connecticut, and I golf to use. Yes, and we can go to a, a brief music break and then we'll be back to continue with the story of um, Rose Hawthorne Lathrop, who is what we're, who we're talking about on this episode of Credo this afternoon. This is Hallelujah by Joan Niemand. I will be your 
So Hallelujah by Joe Neiman. And if you've just tuned in, you are listening to Credo live on Radio Maria with Edward Hadass. And we've been talking about Rose Hawthorne Lathrop, who is a servant of God, um, one of the lesser known, I guess, um, uh, servants of God that I know. Anyway, I hadn't heard of her before, but with a really fascinating life. And we've left her sort of in a malaise, unhappy in her marriage, um, with her child having died, listless, not sure what to do with herself. Um, do you want to pick pick up the story? 
Right. Um, very happily pick it up. So there she is. Um, not only has her child died, but also her sister, who she was very close with. She and her brother are mostly feuding about um, basically about the literary heritage of her father, Nathaniel Hawthorne, um, their father. And it's all a bit of a, a, a sad story. Then for reasons that we don't really know, she and her husband jointly or together convert to Catholicism. So um, she remembers she's born in 1851 and mm -hmm. the, the conversion comes in 1891. So she's 40 years old um, and it clearly is um, a great, great turning point in her life. We don't know an awful lot about what she was thinking, why she was doing it, um, uh, or how, how she saw this process. As I said, uh, she wasn't a terribly religious person. I mean, she was married in an Anglican church and went to church fairly regularly, but it didn't seem like that was of any great soulful comfort. But from the moment of her conversion to Catholicism, she started to see a new vision. And it's worth thinking back at this this time. So one could be a Puritan, one could be a Unitarian, one might even be a Baptist. But the idea of converting of respectable people, converting to Catholicism in the Northeast of America mm -hmm. in the 1880s or 90s, um, was absolutely shocking. Um, and this was a well-known family. So we have records of at least 56 different newspapers wow. in the United States covering this as a news story. Hawthorne's daughter and her husband convert to Catholicism with remarkable anti-Catholic sentiments expressed by a lot of people. It just sort of had descended into devil worship, really. Wow. Um, but a lot of this. Am I right in thinking she converted in England or? No, no, she no, was in okay. New London, Connecticut. Oh, okay. Um, so yes. no, they're very American story at this point. Her, her mm -hmm. English and Rome experience was, was in her childhood. Now, that's not quite true. She also lived in Germany as a young woman and did live in England for a little bit, but she's back to America by the time she converts and has lived there for, for 10 years. And we don't really know if there were some figures that, you know, some people she knew um, it doesn't seem to have been a lot of contact with clergy because two years after conversion, they set up, she and her husband set up a summer school um, and invite a group of, of, uh, of priests and brothers to uh, come and teach. And this seems to have been a really transformational experience for her. So already there's an interior transformation um, mm -hmm. and then an exterior transformation, as it were. And she starts to become very interested in social reform. She's a Catholic feminist of, of the time, interested in suffrage and in protecting women from abusive husbands and um, trying to campaign against drinking. So the sort of campaigning that her mother's family would have done as Unitarian yeah. social improvement. She had been friends with um, Emma Lazarus, who was the, the Jewish poet whose great poem about, well, honestly, the great poem, their poem about yeah. uh, huddled masses yearning to be free was put on the Statue of Liberty in New York. Oh, okay. uh, 
so that she she got involved in a social reform community of the of, of reformers, most of whom were Protestant. Very few were Catholic at that point. Um, it's before the Catholic social encyclicals and um, before the great some of the great movements in the United States of Catholic reform were were just starting really then. So there she is. She and her husband go down to Washington D.C. and write a um, write a, 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 a book. Hold on, I need to, to move off a little bit here. Um, um, they 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 write a book about um, some visitation um, sisters in Washington D.C. who had started doing social reform work. It was a joint project, but it seems most likely that it was done by Rose rather than by her husband. And um, and that, that project um, was uh, seemed to have inspired her because of these sisters were mostly women who joined up um, after their husbands had died as widows, so in their 40s mm -hmm. and 50s. And so that's part of her story, that this seemed to be um, an inspiration to her. And I'm happy to say that the clergy were an inspiration to her. So nice. this meeting in New London of priests and brothers, she found their holiness, their friendliness, um, and, and their, their concern for each other and for, for her and for the world. Um, they were supporting social reforms of various sorts. Um, absolutely inspired her. And um, so I, 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 when I re read this, I was thinking, how many people today, if you went to a convention of clergy running a school, 10 or 12 brothers and priests, um, would you come out and say, ooh, I want more of that? I, I hope there's a large number, but let that be a challenge um, to the clergy to be as inspirational in large groups as these this group was to, to, to Rose uh, Hawthorne Lathrop. Okay, so it seems that she was then brooding for a few years as to what to do. Um, and then she finds a vocation. Again, we don't really know too much about it, but it seems very much that's, that there was a kind of conversation she has with someone who says that what the world needs right now are people who will take care of the most wretched. So much like Pope Francis talking about going out to the margins, um, someone gave her this idea and someone mentioned that the indigent poor, the indigent ill die, often die alone and in misery and particularly people who die have cancer. And her friend Emma Lazarus, who I just mentioned, um, had died of cancer, although in comfort because she came from a pretty good family. Um, but Rose had been very struck by the pain and difficulty of her cancer. Um, and at this point, many people, the standard vision was that cancer was contagious. And so you would have people with terrible sores, mm -hmm. the kind of they were worrying about tended to have a lot of lesions and sort of disgusting things and people thought they would catch cancer from from taking care of them so rose gets this idea um in uh in about seven years after her conversion and goes off to become a religious celibate um carer for 
indigent women, poor women dying of cancer. She takes this as a plan. She goes to a hospital and does a little training in nursing so she can take care of them. And she announces to her husband that she is going to do this thing. And, um, and from then on, we know very little about what she's thinking. A woman that's been writing a lot of letters back and forth, a lot of listlessness, has a mission. She has a vocation and she never wavers from this. Um, basically, she, um, she, she hardly leaves her vocation. It grows, it becomes an order. Eventually she gets approved. Well, before it can become an order, she gets approved by the, uh, the Archbishop of New York, who was very skeptical at first. Um, and, uh, and, and it's a, a success and she administers it. She takes care of, of some people herself, but mostly she becomes the head of this order, mother superior. And, and as it grows, she needs to, to work hard at supervising to make sure that it continues to work and raise money and so forth. But it takes up all of her time, all of her energy and she never wavers. She leaves this role only once to go to Washington, D.C. to plead for her brother, who was about to be imprisoned for mail fraud. Uh, mm. President gets President Taft, doesn't listen to her. Um, he goes to prison and she goes back and doesn't uh, does, doesn't really leave. I think she might have spent one day at a party to celebrate her father's literary output a hundred years after his birth or something. Um, but even, I think she goes to that, but she regrets it. She feels that's a break of her vocation. Um, and she seems to have been enormously happy, if you will. I mean, not happy like cheerful party girl, yeah. but just absolutely has found her content. A total reversal of her situation of listlessness, of malaise, as you so nicely put it, Anna, um, that, that, that there she is. But mm -hmm. I need to her tell husband. the story about her husband. Uh, is, is, do we need to break yet or shall I... No, we can go in on for a little bit more. Yeah. Go on then. Okay. So George was none too happy about um, her leaving. Um, he effectively, she had to run away from home. She went off to Canada. First, she went to Jamaica where she had a brother-in-law, some sort, a cousin. And then she went to Canada and he kept uh, finding her. She was sort of, wasn't disclosing where she was, but he had a little bit of you know, information would come to him and he would write her these letters. Um, and I say he was none too happy. Um, he was obviously discontent that she was leaving, but she didn't really object to the, the vocation. He just thought it shouldn't be a full-time vocation. Um, he does at one point say that maybe she should spend some time in an asylum, a mental hospital mm -hmm. and calm down, and then she can go back to the vocation. Um, so perhaps he's not fully sympathetic, but it's an interesting, we have a little, we have the letters and we can see from his writing that he really cares about her and is not trying to stop her freedom as he sees it um, and or to get in the way of this vocation as he sees it. But she's really a radical here and she's doing something that 
Um, well, it makes people uncomfortable. It made people so uncomfortable that her early biographers said he was a drunk and abusing her, and that's why she left. But that wasn't why she left. It's quite clear. It's, she left because she felt God was calling her to do it. She was very influenced by Jane, the story of Jane Chantal, uh, mm -hmm. Jean Chantal, who was a 17th century saint, um, uh, 16th, yeah, 17th century um, who left her adult children, she was a widow by that time, but left her adult children to take up a life of charity as a, as a religious, um, including, we are told, stepping over her son who had fallen at her feet to beg her to stay. And she said, no, God is calling me. Oh. So Rose as a wife, was quite modern. She didn't feel like she was the chattel of her husband, you know, the property. She felt she had the freedom to do what she wanted. And she felt that an idea that was once quite common, that when God calls, you do not say no. So what she wanted was not to be away from George in the sense of um, get away from this horrible man. She wanted George to join her in this mission. She wanted to live as, as brother and sister um, because she thought they were would have a religious calling, but she thought very strongly they would have a joint religious calling. Together, they would take care of the cancerous poor. He wasn't up to that. Um, um, but shortly after he died, and, and this made her very unhappy uh, that, that he wouldn't come, she wrote him touching letters about how it's nothing personal as it were it's just what god wants and there was a it's not you it's god <laughs> it's not you it's me no it's god right well said okay and uh um and then he dies as he he had not been well for a long time he had as i say nephritis and she rushes to the hospital to see her, to where her, to home, to see him as he's dying. She hears the news. She does not there on time. He's dead for a half hour. And she feels very guilty. We have a little letter from her in the, the first or account that she feels terrible, that it was her fault. She should have been taking care of her husband. And, you know, he might have lived longer. And there's a moment of real regret that perhaps this vocation has been harmful. And, um, and, and so she's quite torn up by this. Uh, and then she has a dream and we can make what we want of this dream. And, and, uh, uh, and so we'll, I'll tell it and then, then we'll move on. And maybe we'll have a, another song there to recover from the emotion of this. So her dream is that George is in heaven and speaks to her and says, I couldn't appreciate while I was still alive um, what you were doing, um, but now I can, and I'm now dedicating my time in heaven, as it were, to praying for you and will help you from on high. And uh, Rose wakes up from the stream. She's a woman, remember, sort of in her early 40s, um, and she says, I never had any doubt of the authenticity of this vision, and I, I was com completely persuaded from then on that George was with me and behind me in this project, and that it was God's mercy to help him to see what had to be done. So from doubt and fear and guilt, she changes into um, a even stronger conviction that this is what God wants her to do, and that this will be from, I mean, she's not interested in personal fulfillment. 
that she that she has found her mission in life and that what might have been a mission to be a wife, a better wife, um, was not her mission, and God has confirmed it with this dream. Now, if you're cynical, you might say, oh, that's psychologically helpful. How convenient to have that dream. Mm. But I'm, I'm going to go for that this is the Holy Spirit speaking um, through the dream, and that there's a great truth to this, that people are called out of a normal life into an extraordinary life, and that those of us who are uh, could block them or could support them are actually called to support them. Mm-hmm. So that seems like a good breaking point yes. for, for now. This is Freedom Bringer by Ella Kalitska. Every sunrise shines in expectance To see the day when you believe in your light Every leaf sways eagerly to see the day When you move with confidence and grace Every breeze breathes gently on your face To blow off the doubt surrounding your heart Every drop of rain awaits to watch The rivers of joy flowing out of you Hey Freedom bringer, wake up and set your course of truth. Hey, you love restorer, raise your voice and help us feel again. Hey, you freedom bringer, wake up and set your course of truth. Hey, you love restorer, raise your voice and help us feel again. sky longing to celebrate the day you find your way every bird sings with expectance for the time when you let the truth be heard every flower blooms awaiting for the seed of love to flourish every mountain yearns tenderly for the spark of freedom in your eyes when you your love everything changes when you realize how much your love everything changes when you realize how much your love everything changes hey you freedom bringer wake up Set your course on truth. Hey, you love restorer, raise your voice and help us feel again. Hey, you freedom bringer, wake up and set your course on truth. Hey, you love restorer, raise your voice and help us feel again. Hey, you freedom bringer, wake up.
was Freedom Bringer by Ella Kalitska. And you are listening to Credo live on Radio Maria England. And I've been talking to Edward Haddas about uh, Rose Hawthorne Lathrop and uh, her life story, which involved leaving her husband to to follow a vocation, which is quite challenging. Just a, a little story. So my middle name is Nicola because my grandmother's Swiss and supposedly we're descended from St. Nicholas von Flew, um, who was a Swiss medieval saint who had 10 children and left his wife and children to become a hermit. And I think the joke is that his wife is the real saint. Um, but I, I think, yeah, people do find these kinds of stories very challenging. I can imagine that there might be some Catholic, I mean, plenty of Catholics probably who in good faith might question whether it's the right thing to do. Um, what what would be your, your thoughts about it? Well, I think it's good to question whether it's the right thing to do, um, because I certainly wouldn't want to encourage um, people to just up and leave because they feel they have some other vocation than being married to this woman or this man. Um, but I also think that we should give credit to Rose um, and give her this or the benefit of the spiritual doubt mm -hmm. in that what she wanted to do was something that clearly was a project that um, was not that distant from what Rose and George had been planning to do together. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think it's fair to say that um, she was... Um, she was committed to the marriage in a higher sense. It wasn't like she was leaving him to have fun yeah. or to um, to find another man. She was leaving him because she felt very strongly that God was calling them to do something great, to have a life less ordinary. And one can psychoanalyze this and say, you know, this or that about her and her father. And I think all of that is true. I mean, she talks about the incident I mentioned earlier of her father reaching out to a poor and disgusting man. Um, she talks about um, her, her feeling of need for to do something in, in the world. And so there's a sort of psychological uh, stress there. But I do think that uh, with with caution and, and perhaps your your distant ancestor in a different world and in a different culture, one, one has to look at that also and say, how do we judge this? That in a world where so many people suffer from malaise, from listlessness, that we should give a little bit of respect, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. uh, to people who do something that might be at the edge of the marriage vows um, in order to um, follow what they are persuaded is, is God's call and which is within the realm of God's call. It's not a, you know, it's not a crazy thing to do in that yeah. sense. It's just the, the, the conflict that was, that was there. And, you know, one can easily imagine the story moving on if George hadn't died and him saying, yes, 
took me a few years, but I realized this was what I was that that this was a good thing, um, and and then 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 we wouldn't have these doubts, but we we don't get the chance because that's not the way that that it turns out in in time. So let me just go on a little bit here um, because we are running out of time a little, or we will be. Um, so George, so so Rose sets up what becomes the Dominicans called the Dominican Sisters of Hawthorne. Um, that she builds eventually, she starts incredibly small. She rents a terrible apartment, a flat in the, a bad area of New York with just about enough room for one patient, one dying woman. She finds a dying woman who comes and stays with her for a while. And um, she starts to get donations. She has good connections for that. And after a while, she gets a bigger apartment. Um, and in a few years, um, she gets a big facility. Um, the, the bishop, as I mentioned, becomes friendly. And it starts to take on the form of a nascent religious order. And this, these things take a while. They, she finds a, 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 she has to get a habit and a rule. Um, and she joins up with the Dominicans as a sort of active um, part of the Dominican family. Um, and she's very successful and they, she, she gets this big house um, in upstate New York, not far from New York. And they rename the town Hawthorne oh, wow. after its now most famous resident and this famous uh, um, uh, uh, house which takes care of dying people. And um, as I say, there's not much to be said in a way about what's happening to her. She just does that thing that the religious are supposed to do. She's Mother Mary Alfonso. She apparently was extremely tough on um, postulants. So she kicked a lot of people out oh. uh, who wanted to join um, because she had a very high vision of the spirituality that was necessary, the absolutely unstinting care and love for these dying people. Mm -hmm. um, and in that sense, she's actually a pioneer of what we now call palliative or, or uh, hospice care of taking people who are dying, giving them adequate medical attention, but basically being a spiritual accompaniment, um, not a, uh, not, you know, prolong their life, particularly just trying to keep them comfortable and give them the most basic medical care. And she saw this as a Catholic and a Christian and a civilizing mission that these people, particularly these very poor people who would have almost no care, um, should be cared for as much as rich people would get care. Uh, in a society that was very uh, divided in that way. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't write about it much. She's too busy running the order. So here you have a woman who comes from a family where people could barely breathe without writing a short story <laughs> about this last breath I took, um, taking 40 years, 35 years or so of her life. And, um, and she died in 1926, so she died as an old woman, and basically never telling anyone anything except, you know, keep praying, keep working, um, and administering this quite large business, as it were, with a lot of employees, these religious sisters. Um, and 
and, and, and very successful in that sense of continuing to have vocations and continuing to expand. Her last day of life, she gets up in the morning, writes a whole collection of letters of administrative sort, goes to mass, goes to bed, and is dead in the morning. She's, you know, found dead in, in bed. So uh, she is a, a woman of, of at, from being, as it were, noisy and empty, she becomes mm -hmm. quiet and full. So it's a really remarkable story of what she does. And I think it's a very, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the modernity of this story, because first of all, her vocation of reaching out to the margins in a very personal way um, with this vision of pure charity. She wouldn't take money from her, her, her the people visiting. She would only take no, to take uh, donations. Um, she, eventually the order will, will take donations after the people die, but there's no question of discriminating. It's still going, it's shrunk mm -hmm. a bit. Um, there's a beautiful video on their website uh, of people testifying to how loving they are. And in the United States, where medicine is the hugest business, yeah. where they all are, they still don't take any money. That's They're wonderful. completely out of the government subsidy system. Um, they just take care of people. It's a complete charity of love. And I think that's a really important lesson for today, where it's so hard for people to to get away from the kind of administrative welfare state mentality of charity. And Christian love calls us to do something different. And I think Christian love would be so much more popular, as it were, yeah. if it disentangle itself more fully from being part of a healthcare system that is so administrated, so so impersonal, so focused not on caring for the person as a whole, but for the mechanical care of the body. And I think Rose Hawthorne Lathrop, Sister Mary, Alf Mother Mary Alfonso, is is a tremendous inspiration for that um, that high active ideal of Christian charity. That's wonderful. Um, the, the other thing I want to say is about what we were talking about before, about at the very beginning of the hour that I was trying to mention, uh, I started to mention is that when I meet young women particularly, but also young men, I so often hear them, sometimes in so many words, as you mentioned, Anna, about Fleabag, flea whatever, mm -hmm. uh, um, or but even more often, in, in what they don't feel and in what they, the way they talk about their discontent. I so often hear people crying out for a vocation and they often think that marriage is the vocation and sometimes it is. And they often think that being a parent, particularly being a mother is the vocation and it often is. And sometimes in Catholic circles, you hear people think that a religious life is a vocation and it often is. But often it isn't. Um, often none of the things that are just right at, af, offered to you um, are, are vocations. And I think what Rose Hawthorne Lathrop suggests to me is that if we open ourselves to the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Spirit will give us a vocation that's not necessarily easy or natural or obvious, that might even seem a little bit transgressive as hers was towards the rules of marriage, but that if we listen, that something can be offered where we really can stop thinking about ourselves so much, stop feeling so lost and lonely, and live a life of service and prayer um, that is what God wants from all of us in some better way. And I think she's really a, a kind of perfect example of that, um, that listening to the spirit. And I, I also find her very encouraging because she basically didn't even get started on this journey <laughs> till she was 40. Yeah. So all of you people in your 30s just, you know, <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not too late. It's mm -hmm. not too late for that 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 vision to take place, to, 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 to take shape uh, in, in, in your life. Uh, That's and an, I, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, I, I was just going to begin to wrap things up. But um, Please, you have yeah. one last point that you want no, to no, make. I, no, that, that was, that okay. was, I, I could well, go on forever, so I'll stop there. <laughs> I think that's a good good note to end on, that um, wherever you are in your life, however lost you're feeling, even if you're in your 30s, <laughs> um, there's still hope. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Credo this afternoon live on Radio Maria.